This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're all in borrowed time. I always feel that our children are on loan to us. We're not always going to have them, and they're not always going to have us. They're going to become different people. And I think when you realize this, then every single moment that you have can become almost magical because it's the only time you'll ever have this moment. So pay attention to it, be grateful, um, and then see what happens. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Loss, Drama, and Trauma with our esteemed guest, Caroline Levitt, who is an author, screenwriter, writing teacher, and co-founder of the literary platform A Mighty Blaze. Caroline is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of With or Without You, Cruel Beautiful World, Is This Tomorrow, Pictures of You, Girls in Trouble, Coming Back to Me, Living Other Lives, Into Thin Air, Family Jealousies, Lifetime, Meeting Rosie Halfway. And there's many, many more. I had to say them all. Also, we all need to know that her paperback publication of With or Without You was just released. Her many essay stories and book reviews and articles have appeared in numerous publications, including Salon, Psychology Today, The New York Times Sunday Book Review, New York Times Modern Love, Publishers Weekly, People, New York Magazine, and so much more. She's appeared on The Today Show and has been featured on The View from the Bay. Caroline lives in Hoboken, New Jersey with her husband and has an acting student son, Max. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I love the show and I'm so thrilled and honored to be on too. Thank you again. I um, So we have so much to talk about uh, and uh, I have so many things I want to ask you. And I, I, it would, the, all my questions were fighting to be first. And the one, that, the one, that's, the one that's come first uh, is how did you become a writer? Oh, oh, it, it, that comes from 
family and parenting, actually. When I was a child, I had really, really bad asthma. And I couldn't go out and play when all the other kids were playing. I had to stay indoors. So I discovered the library. And I stayed in the library all the time. And I was always asking the librarians, do you have any books about kids like me, like little girls who have asthma who can't go out and play? And they never had those books, but they gave me other books about, you know, people who had bronchitis or pleurisy or all these other lung diseases. And it made me feel better. It made me feel less alone. And my parents allowed me to take out as many books as I wanted from the library. They allowed me to buy as many books as I wanted. So I was always, always in this other world. And it just reached a point where I didn't want to just read stories. I wanted to write them. So that's what I did. And I decided early on, this is what I want to do. This is what I have to do. Mm -hmm. And in, in reading some of your work, it does strike me as a, a need, like a need for you, a need for others, a need to make sense of the world and help others make sense of it as well. It, that's absolutely true. It's always been my need to like figure it out. There's always a question, how did this happen to me? And if I can give it to another character, I can usually figure it out. And hopefully, the deeper I go inside myself, the more it can help others. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you growing up? Uh, well, my father was an absolute brute. He was kind of a monster. He didn't really speak. He was very silent, except when he was screaming. He was physically abusive. My mom was both wonderful and tragic. My mom was incredibly loving and funny, but she could switch over on a dime and be... Uh, just go into rages because her life was so unhappy. Um, I did have the protection of my older sister for a long time. She was very um, full of adventure and she took me every place. She was the one who showed me how to hitchhike when I was 10 years old and uh, all kinds of, you know, dangerous things. She taught me how to smoke cigarettes, um, <laughs> which I didn't like, but she taught me that. So she was my protector. So from the moment that I grew up, I, I felt that my home was haunted and I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to be on my own. Mm -hmm. Do you think it really was? I mean, because there's figurat figuratively and literally, do you think your uh, house was haunted? I'm just curious. Um, I actually do. I think, I think architecture can retain energy somehow like sometimes mm -hmm. you go in a room and mm -hmm. you just feel this doesn't feel good uh even after i moved out of my house and years and years later when i was really happy i would come home and as soon as i stepped in that house i would feel that mm -hmm. weird energy but you know i don't think in terms of ghosts or demons mm -hmm. i just more think that it didn't feel good i had to yeah. get out yeah yeah and i know people describe the feeling that you are describing about being in certain places and the energy yeah that is abound. Um, just like when we walk into other places and we have this like calm, peaceful energy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So Caroline, you have been through several adversities, uh, situations <laughs> of adversity. Um, and uh, how do I know this? Because you do a wonderful job of describing them and um, writing about them and working through them and teaching us through them. And one of the major ones um, was being in a coma. Tell us about oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I grew up never wanting to have kids because my own 
upbringing was so terrible and everybody said oh you'll change you'll change and I said no I won't no I won't and then I fell in love with Jeff my husband in my 30s and all of a sudden I was dying to have kids and I got pregnant had just the greatest pregnancy ever you know no problems whatsoever fantastic delivery and then just as I was about to go home I was taking my shower in the hospital and I noticed that I looked like I was 14 months pregnant and my stomach was really hard and the doctors weren't really sure what it was and they said well it's probably a maybe it's a little blood clot let's you know just take you in clean you up and then you can go home with your son so the next thing I remember is just black just black and apparently what happened was when they took me down to the operating room to open me up the nurse told me later it was like the scene in the shining where all the blood pours out of the elevator i just kept bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and they didn't know why they couldn't find the source so they sewed me back up put me back in the hospital bed and i puffed out again with blood they gave me five emergency operations just to keep the blood from pooling inside me and they still didn't know what was happening and then they they discovered that it had to do something with the blood in me but they didn't know what so there was this hematologist there who was just about to retire and she said I've only seen a case like this once before and I think I know what it was but we have to do this dangerous test to find out what it is and it's expensive the hospital actually did not want to do the test and Jeff said do the test I'll pay for it and they did the test and sure enough it showed this protein and it's this protein that's called a factor eight inhibitor factor eight is what clots your blood and for some reason after i delivered my baby when my immune system was coming back to me um this protein erupted and it just stopped all of my blood from clotting so i was bleeding everywhere internally and they didn't know how to stop it and so they gave me a million transfusions they apparently gave me some operation where they went in and they surgically glued all my veins shut that didn't work they gave me factor eight from pigs porcine factor eight that didn't work and finally they had this very toxic medicine called FIBA blocker. It was factor eight inhibitor blocker. And they gave it to me and they called in specialists and they decided the best thing to do would be to put me in a medically induced coma because they did not want, they felt I would be more easy to manage because apparently I was in huge pain, but I don't remember it. They also gave me memory blockers. I didn't know there was such a thing, but they gave it to me because they didn't want me to remember. So I didn't. So at that point, nothing was really working. And all of my family was called into the hospital and I was, they were told that I was dying. And they called in this specialist from another hospital to operate and try to figure out what the source of this problem was. And they felt that during this operation, I was either going to die or I was going to live. And this guy was a genius and luckily I lived. And they started to very slowly bring me out of the coma. And that was where wow. things got terrifying for me because coming out of a coma, at least for me, was nothing like what you see in the movies. All I remembered is all of a sudden 
I woke up and I really thought that I was in a high rise apartment. And there was this big, huge photograph of my son, Max, as a baby, pasted on the wall. And it was written on it in my husband's handwriting, get well, mommy, we miss you. And that really terrified me because I thought, what, what is going on? Like, what do they mean? Like, what do they mean? Get well. And I realized that I couldn't move and there was nobody in the room. And I kept hearing this soundtrack. And all of a sudden I thought, and I thought this because I was on huge doses of morphine at the time, but I thought, Oh, you know what? I haven't been living reality. This is reality. I must be a character on a TV show when there's this laugh track and I have to escape from this. So I lifted up the sheet to get out. And the first thing I saw was my torso was just covered with stitches from all the surgeries. And then which you didn't know, which you I didn't know, know that you, yeah, yeah, I had no idea. And then everything went black again. The next time I woke up, there were people around me. And again, I thought, oh, I'm still in this TV show because they were asking me, do you know who you are? Do you know what's happened? Do you know what day it is? And again, I had no idea what was going on. And I lifted up the sheets again. And there were still like all the scars over my body and drains. And I was attached to all these machines. And then I saw that on my legs, there were these compression socks that were making a kind of music. And that's what I thought the music was from the TV show. Mm. So I had a really, really long coming out of the coma process. I had to relearn. I was in the hospital for another three months. I had to relearn to walk. They wouldn't let me eat for another two months. They were always, wow. do- there were always doctors coming in to me because I was an interesting case, but the absolute worst thing was they wouldn't let me see my baby because they weren't sure if what I had was contagious. They also were worried if I had too much stress, it might be bad for me and I might get critically ill again. And I began to believe that my baby was not alive. And And how old was Max at that time? He was like, he was about three months. He was about Mm. three months. I kept saying, I have to see him. I have to see him. And I would beg my husband and my husband would say, well, he's alive. He's alive. And then because I was still on memory blockers, I would forget that he had told me he was alive or that he had shown me a photograph. And it was really, really difficult. So one day Jeff came in And he had a little movie he had made of Max's first moments, all the moments Mm. I had missed. You know, Max at the pediatrician, Max in his first bath, whatever. And the nurses were so wonderful, and they allowed us to use the break room. And I watched the video, and I was crying and crying and crying. And everybody thought I was crying because I was so happy to see him. But actually, I was crying because I felt like, this isn't my baby. They're, they're, They're fooling me. They're showing me somebody else's baby. They finally, after another month, let Jeff come in with the baby. And again, it was the same thing. There was this big baby, and I had no idea who he was. The problem with the coma really started when I was allowed to go home after another month after that, but I had to stay in bed. And I kept having these almost post-traumatic shock triggers where a certain sense, certain lotions would make me panic. Uh, A certain kind of soup would make me panic. I had nightmares all the time. And uh, for a while, I was afraid of my baby because we weren't, he didn't know who I was. And I really didn't know who he was. And it just seemed like everything was upside down. 
You didn't have that time to attach. No, you, I you, didn't. That was, that was disrupted. That was disrupting. Um, and it was terrifying. So when I finally was able to get out of bed and I was still having these panic attacks, I decided to go to a therapist because I knew I had to do something. And the therapist said, well, this is because you don't have memories and you have to recreate, recreate those memories. And since you're a writer, you should write mm-hmm. about it. Why don't you, you know, write a book mm-hmm. about it? So mm-hmm. that was how With or Without You came about. I, you know, I decided I was going to write a book about it and I was going to give my whole experience to someone who was not me, who had a very different experience like than I'd had. So unlike me, Stella actually remembers everything in her coma. And unlike me, Stella comes out of the coma actually better with a startling new talent. And unlike me, there was not a baby involved for Stella, though she very much yearns for one. And that actually healed me quite a bit, quite a bit. And the Mm. healing with me and my son took a little bit more, but then when it came, it was remarkable. And, and, as an author, this is what you do. You get to rewrite your story in a way that heals. Yes. Yes. I get to realize because it's sort of like the brain, the brain, when you're hypnotized, the brain doesn't really know the difference. You can tell somebody, oh, it's freezing out. And that person will shiver, even though it's 110 degrees. It's the Mm -hmm. same thing when I'm writing. It's like, I'm in the zone. I feel that it's real. And Mm -hmm. when I was able to give voice to Stella in her coma, it felt so mm-hmm. good for me. It felt like mm-hmm. it felt as though I was making something good out of something that had been very terrible. So, your story, Caroline, is incredible in at so many levels. Um, I want to just comment on something towards that the end, towards the end of the story, which um, is I think really important for people to hear who have had disrupted attachments with their children. Um, It is possible, obviously, to reconnect and to reattach and to to make that connection, even when traumatic disruptions occur. How did you do that? It was very difficult. I, um, I had to be in bed. And every morning, Jeff would bring Max in to the bed with me. And he would stay with us. And of course, the baby was always looking towards Max. If Jeff went out of the room for anything, Max would scream. And it was it was really upsetting. And we talked about it, like, what can we do? What can we do? And Jeff suggested, he said, well, you know what, why don't you start doing more things for Max? What can you do? And I thought, well, I can, I can, I can feed him. I can feed him a bottle. And I had had such wonky meds, I wasn't allowed to breastfeed. So I had a bottle for him. And that was something that at first he didn't like that I was feeding him, but then he got used to it. And there were other things. He said, I will bring his clothes in and you put the clothes on him. And it took a really long time. And then I remember after about a a month or so of doing this, one day we were just laying on the bed together. And I actually have a photograph of this moment because it was so amazing. And I was just sort of looking at him and he was looking at me and I was talking to him and he literally reached up his little hand and he put it on my face. And it was like that moment was the moment of connection. It was sort of electrifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And after that, we just, it just grew and grew and grew. And once I was well, it was as if those first months had not 
been able to erase any of our connection. We were mm. so bonded. We were so, mm. we were just so much in love with each other. And mm-hmm. it was a huge relief. It was just a huge, huge relief. So from your background, you're like, well, I'm not having kids. I'm not, I'm just not right. <laughs> going to do that. And then you have a child because you're excited to have a child. And then you go through this unbelievably traumatic, uh, multiple traumatic situation. And now you have this bond. And then what is your back then? Like, what is your parenting plan? You know, like, you know, like, what what are you thinking about how you're going to, I'm guessing, like, I'm going to do this different. Yes. We sat down, Jeff and I sat down when we decided to have a child and we wrote down all the things we were never going to do. We were never going to raise our voices. We were never going to hit. We were always going to apologize when we had done something wrong. We were always going to encourage our child, no matter what he wanted to do. If he loved it, that was great with us. I mean, we were going to be, you know, we were going to have art all around and music and all this stuff. And um, I just picked that right up where I had left off. You know, after three months, mm. I would bring in music. Jeff would bring in music into the bedroom and I would sing and Max would sort of make noise. And later when he was older, he would sing. And the funny thing about it is, it sounds so weird to say this, but actually I consider going through this coma one of the luckiest things that ever happened in my life because mm. it really sort of forced me to consider what is really important in life. How do you get through adversity? It made me so much closer to, I mean, I was really close to my husband anyway, but it made us so hugely bonded. Um, It made me appreciate everything. It made me much more patient because I had to be. It took me a whole year before I was well. Um, And I just consider it sort of a you know, not that I want to go through anything like that again, but I'm sort right, of glad right. that it happened because it really changed me and it taught me a lot. When we, when we, in thinking about your, the different adversities and traumas, does the ones you had prior, perhaps any that you've dealt with after, do you feel that trauma, experiencing trauma prepares one for experiencing trauma or adversity? And I know those are different things. Adversity is different than trauma. And I want to be really clear about that. Um, So maybe let's separate that. (laughs) Let's say about dealing with adversity and then also dealing with another trauma. Dealing with adversity, it definitely prepares you because when things happen, like if if I lost a publishing deal, I hope that never happens, or if someone broke their leg, that's adversity. But I would know, okay, breathe, deal with this, we'll get through this. Trauma, I'm not so sure you can ever prepare. I mean, before mm-hmm. I had Max, I a long time before I had Max, I was engaged to this man and we had lived together for four years and he died of a heart attack two weeks before our wedding and nothing can prepare you for that. And I was a mess for years after that. And I'm not sure that, I mean, I look at my coma and I think, oh, I learned things from that and it turned out okay. Um, I'm not sure what I learned from my fiance dying so suddenly and he actually died you know right in front of me um but it def the only thing that it did do is it made me appreciate 
what I had or what I could have in the future much, much more. I, I think mm-hmm. when you know you can mm-hmm. lose something, you value what you do have. Mm-hmm. Well, and this brings us to a very uh, a painful part of life, loss and grief, and mm-hmm. something that you uh, have written about, uh, the rules of grief. Yes. And, <laughs> and your quote is, there are none. There are none, right. Mm-hmm. There were absolutely none. When when my fiance died, I went to a grief counselor and the grief counselor told me, you know, be like Jackie Kennedy, be serene, make people feel better around you. And I thought, oh, okay. And I tried that and it wasn't helping. So I went to another grief therapist. And when I told her that, she said, Jackie Kennedy, are you kidding me? You need to be like Yoko Ono, scream, tear your hair out. The thing about grief is like, try to dive into it. And I thought, oh, (laughs) maybe that will work. And the thing is, it actually did help. I mean, it was horrible, but it was a much more honest thing for me to do. And I've discovered that different people grieve differently. And you have to be able to ask people what you for what you need. If you need people to be to make you laugh, ask for it. If you need people to just sit there and listen to you cry and wail or be angry, then ask for that too. And a lot of times you don't know what you need. So you have to experiment and try for what you need. But yeah, there are mm-hmm. no rules. Mm-hmm. And and in my own experiences with grief and and um, experiences with clients over the years, there isn't a timeline. No, there isn't. Uh, I mean, there is the the stage at Kubler Ross's wonderful stages of grief, and those right. seem to hold up. Um, but it's different in different waves, in different mm-hmm. lengths for everyone. And I think what you're saying is so important for people to hear. Is like, don't let other people tell you how to feel or how right. not to feel. Because we actually, in, the, in in that condition of tremendous loss and grief, we're not always even able to understand how we feel. Right, right. And I also really totally disagree when people say, you can get over it. Because for me, the thing is, why would you want to get over a person you had loved? <laughs> you know, maybe you're not mm-hmm. mourning and crying and sobbing every day, but wouldn't you want to always hold that person in your heart and feel close to that person in some way, even if it's just through stories? Hmm. Yes. Uh, let's take a moment for that. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and the idea that, um, you know, these people who leave us, the we want to, they're still with us. We want to keep them with us. Yes. Um, and it becomes a different relationship. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, the other thing you said about grief, you wrote about grief, which I, I wanted to to read because it, it, it was very impactful for me is that it deepened me, made me more compassionate, more open to possibilities and more grateful for every second I have. Yeah. <laughs> I think when you realize that, I mean, the truth of life is that any second something can happen and mm-hmm. it can be completely terrible and it can derail you or it can be completely wonderful. But the thing is, we're all, we're all in borrowed time. 
I always feel that our children are on loan to us. We're not always going to have them and they're not always going to have us. They're going to become different people. And I think when you realize this, then every single moment that you have can become almost magical because it's the only time you'll ever have this moment. So pay attention to it, be grateful, um, and then see what happens. Mindfulness. I mean, you're really talking about right. being really mindful um, with the idea of, I mean, those who have lost and those who have experienced trauma, you do, you do have a very real experience of um, how life can change and how things can be taken um, from, from you physically, um, spiritually, emotionally. And uh, and on the one hand, when there's a trauma response, there's a hyper vigilance. There's a you know that anxiety that you described. Right. And, and I want to draw the distinction between experiencing post traumatic stress and the hyper vigilance and the anxiety and the nightmares and for many the re experiencing um, of the event, and then also the transition or the integration and the healing and 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 how how that happened for you okay so that was actually really important the first bit of healing of course came when i bonded with my son that just made everything better i mean every day we just got closer and closer but the other thing had a lot to do with you know, how I present myself in the world. At the time I was working, writing, you know, about movies and writing about fashion copy. And when you write about fashion copy, you have to sort of look a certain way. So I was very skinny and I had all these fashionable clothes and all this stuff. But when I got sick, everything changed. First of all, I lost all my hair from the drugs. The drugs made me pick up so much bloating and swelling that I looked like I was 300 pounds. And also my skin was literally gray. But we were hurting for money because our medical bills were so, so high and the insurance company was fighting with us over everything. So I called up one of my friends who worked at Victoria's Secret to ask if she had any work for me because if I could just write a Victoria's Secret catalog, it would be $10,000 and it's something I could do in my sleep. Hmm. She said, absolutely, come on in. And I told her, look, I, I look very different than what you imagine. And I really can't come in right now. I've been sick. And she said, no, 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 it doesn't matter. I don't care what you look like. I just want to see you. Please come in. So I had to go in. I had the only thing that fit my body was this muumu <laughs> that mm. was really terrible. I had to wrap a scarf around my head. I put on some makeup. I cried. I looked so terrible, but I told myself I have to do this. You know, I'm we we need money, and it'll only be one day. So I went into Manhattan and immediately on the subway, I saw this group of very fashionable teenage girls and they were looking at me and snickering. And I thought, oh God, what am I going to do? And I, I just sort of felt terrible. So I got to Victoria's Secret. They have this beautiful, sleek office. And I walked in and everybody there is this looks like a model. They all look like models. They're all gorgeous and fancy clothes. And I'm walking in, in my moo. 
And I tell the receptionist who I'm there for. And my friend walks out with a whole pile of work. And as soon as she looks at me, I see the expression on her face. And literally, she just she just froze. Mm. And she came up to me and she said, Caroline? And I said, yeah, I told you I look very different. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. We actually don't have any work for you. And I saw the work in her hand and I knew she did. So I was polite and I left and I called Jeff and I was crying and he said, just hold on, I'm coming in. And he came into the city to meet me and we were just walking and talking about it. And we walked by the store and he said, there was some, it was really, really hot out. And there was some dress in the window, a sundress. And I just looked at him and I said, I could never wear that now. And he looked at me and he said, yes, you can. And I want you to go in there and buy that dress and wear it. And too bad what anybody else thinks. Really, go and get it. And we Mm. talked about it for a while. And I went in and I got the dress and it felt so cool and lovely. And I walked down and I said, do I look like a whale in this? And he said, no, you look fine. You look fine. And I said, are you sure? Do I look like? you know, a cancer survivor or anything else, or do I look sick? And he said, you look like you. And at that moment, I had this revelation where, you know what, it doesn't really matter. All this fuss about what you look and what you're wearing and all this stuff, it doesn't matter. What mattered at that moment was I was alive and I was going to stay alive. And I was with my husband who loved me, who thought I looked beautiful in that dress. And I had a baby who loved me. And to me, that was everything. That was just everything. Wow. I I mean, what an amazing person. I mean, first of all, the courage, the courage, (laughs) the courage that you to get on that train and go into Manhattan to Victoria's Secret. Uh. That's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it was and really the, terrible. And, you know, at the top of the show, we talk about like this show is about love and acceptance and compassion. And like your husband just embodied that for you and how healing and accepting and affirming that was for you. It was incredible. He was incredible. Mm-hmm. You guys have been through it. Um <laughs> And, and so what do you think about this? Um, these adversities make partners stronger. I think it can go either way. I Mm -hmm. mean, when I was in the hospital, Jeff came every day and I became friendly with the nurses who I loved. And the nurses told me that most husbands or partners, they stopped coming after a while. So they loved Jeff because he was there every single day. And I think it's a choice. You can either face the adversity and create a stronger bond or you don't. And I think it's a real sort of calling card for a relationship because it's easy to be in love and happy when everything's fun and you look great and you have money and all this other stuff. But it's what you do in adversity that really bonds you together, how you act, Mm -hmm. how you work through something together. And we were very lucky because we were able to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Very lucky um, and lucky to have each other. Yes. So in in with and without in with or without you, which is just out in paperback form now. There, I want to um, ask you about another theme that is in the book besides this big theme of um, coma and recovery, and that is the theme of forgiveness. Right. What have you learned about forgiveness? <sighs> 
I've learned that I used to think that forgiveness was brushing everything under the rug and then you say you're sorry and then you continue, but it doesn't really work that way, at least not for me. It might work that way for other people because if I just do that, then I still have resentment (laughs) sort of smoldering. And I've learned that forgiveness is actually, you don't absolve somebody of what they did. You understand it. You know, you, you, I have had, um, family members do things and I can't say it's okay. It's okay. But in talking about it, if you can talk about it, then I've come to understand why someone did something. And then I can sort of say, okay, now we've talked about it, you know, please don't do it again. And let, then we can move on. But in terms of just erasing something, mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. Not for me. That's why I write about it so much because I have to sort of go over and over and over until I understand it. And hopefully the person who did it understands it too. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you, you did write you trauma and conflict is part of what makes us human and to heal it, we need to understand it. Yes, exactly. I think so. So does that does that have to involve the person? Is it is it required to forgive? You know the idea of radical forgiveness, and you know the the importance of forgiving others, so we can let go. Do you think that, in your experience, does that actually have to happen, or can you do it internally in your own way? It depends on the person. I mean, I have you know an issue I have with with somebody I had to do internally because the person never thought that they had anything to be forgiven for. So I had to sort of work it out in my head, but with other friends, there's something really wonderful. If you can sit down and say, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry for what I did. I was wrong. And this is what I, this is why I did it. And I'm going to work on that. And I hope you can forgive me. And then you, bond closer you get closer and it is a wonderful thing but with some people you just can't do that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so again there's no prescribed way right i mean no, i feel no like rules. you're really yeah, i feel like yeah no rules <laughs> i feel like yeah, i was just trying no. to sum up sum up your theory of all this stuff and it there are no rules it's what works for you no, what yeah. works for you i could never write a self-help book because <laughs> it would just be for me yeah <laughs> Well, and I think a, a theme then for our listeners, you know, what you're imparting to us is um, is the the confidence, the belief, the courage to do what you need to do um, and to trust trust your own process. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's all what it's about. Mm-hmm. Well. This, uh, <laughs> Caroline, it's just taking us to the parent footprint moment question. Okay. So the question is, tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, or those you love. Well, it had to do with my son, Max, when he was little. It was probably when he was five and in school, and I was still sort of feeling my way as a parent, trying to do all the things that were good, and I I wasn't really sure if 
you know, if my lessons were getting through to him or they weren't getting through to him. And every Saturday we had a ritual. It was just sort of mommy and me time where I would take him into the city and we'd go see a movie and we'd go, we'd go to a place to eat. And he was upset after a movie and I didn't know why. And we sat down and I bought him a milkshake and I was able to talk to him. And he was upset because he was sad about something that happened in the movie. Like the little dog couldn't find his owner. And we talked about it and I got to watch him starting to feel better and starting to perk up. And we were talking about, you know, how you can love things like he loves his stuffed animals and we can repair them when they get hurt or whatever else. And I had this sense of, first I had the sense of, oh, my my mother would never have done this and my father never would have done this, certainly. But I can do this and I'm helping him. And the thing about that moment was when my son had to write his college essay. You know, he wrote it all on his own. He didn't want any help. And when I got to read it, part of his, you know, life lesson that he was talking about was something that I had said to him that day. And Mm. it was such a, like, this wonderful electric shock to me that he had remembered something (laughs) I had said to him and that he was living by. And I thought, that is great. That is the most that we can hope to do with our kids. Just you know, give them information and feeling and emotions and hope that they can use it and that it betters their life. Wow. And, uh, and you never know when, what we, no. we, we never know what soaks in, but, but so much soaks in, right? The good, the bad yeah. and the ugly, it all yep. soaks in and how wonderful and validating to, uh, for him to remember a gem and to write about it so many years later. Oh, it's incredible. It's mm-hmm. totally incredible. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to like encapsulate your words of wisdom and what keeps <laughs> what keeps coming to me. I mean, we were talking about today, we're talking about loss and we're talking about trauma um, and we're talking just about and life, you know, the, the, the challenges mm-hmm. of life. And, and what what's coming to me is and we've said this already is um, there are no rules. There are no rules. And I'm wondering if you could just give us some final thoughts about that from your life lessons and the wisdom that you've gained. Yeah, I think the problem is, is that people set down that there are rules. And if you think back to what the rules were, I mean, my mother always told me that you know what you wives don't work wives should be housewives that was the rule and it's certainly not a true rule now or some people believe you know if you want people to like you you have to be a certain way and that's not necessarily true i think i think the only I hate to use the word rule at all, but I think the only thing you can do is just consistently go deeper and deeper inside yourself to think, what is important here? What's, what is meaningful to me? How can I help other people? How can I be kind? I mean, it's funny. The one thing that my mom told me, the one piece of advice that I really remember and that I've passed down to my son is that the most important thing in all your relationships is to be kind, mm. you know, to just realize mm-hmm. that anybody you talk to, maybe they seem like a blowhard or they're yelling or they're in bad mood, but you don't know they're in a story. Like maybe that person who's yelling 
just found out that somebody they love died and their anger is their way to express their grief or maybe somebody just got a terrible medical diagnosis. I think that the thing is you just really want to be authentic to mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. not to what anybody else says or yeah. thinks. Yeah. Authenticity, kindness. Yes. And going within and going within and continuing to learn and to grow, which you can, which you have been doing uh, for years in your lifetime and, uh, and, and, and through your stories, teaching us all through all of your writing. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Caroline, for sharing, um, your life with us, um, and your important lessons. Thank you for letting me. It's been just an honor. Tell everyone, um, we know that your the paperback book of With or Without You is just released. And tell everyone about your other projects and where they can find the rest of your literary work. Thank you. Well, you can order any of my past books. There's 12 of them uh, from bookshop.org, which will take you to your favorite independent bookstore because I like to support indie bookstores. Um, right now, I have, a new, I have a new book that is due to my publisher in October. It's tentatively called Days of Wonder, and I'm struggling to finish it in time, and that probably will be out in another um year or two. Uh, I do write a blog on psychology today called Runs in the Family, which is about all these kinds of issues that I grapple with, you know, being honest, being truthful, wanting to be liked. And and I co and I co-run a Mighty Blaze and I get to interview wonderful authors on there too. You are doing a lot of wonderful stuff. Um, I want to recommend to all the listeners to check out uh, not only her books, but this, her Psychology Today pieces. It's, um, it's such a breath of fresh air because it's so honest and real. And as you said, Caroline, it's authentic. And it just Thank makes you. you feel like you're sitting there in the family room with you sharing this story or listening to the story about real things that we all have to deal right. with as we're human. Well, thank you. This concludes the show for today. Uh, Thank you all for listening. You know what I'm going to ask you to do to strive to be that person you want your child to become. All we can do is be our best. Start over anytime that we uh, feel we can do better and know that there are always do-overs. We are constantly growing. We are constantly evolving. And we are learning from everyone around us, including our children. Check us out on any podcast platform where you like to listen, subscribe, share with friends, and consider the guiding question I leave you with each show. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.